Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Little Book of Jude, which is positioned just before the book of Revelation. Revelation tells us much of what will happen in the world time of the second coming, Jude tells us what will happen in the church, what will happen among God's people, the time just before the coming of Christ. And he says, beginning in verse 3, Jude, verse 3, one little chapter, one letter, a brief letter at that, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. December the 7th, 1941, approximately 185 miles from Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. A young military man was standing watch over a radar screen. Suddenly, his screen was filled with hundreds and hundreds of dots. He called his superior officer, and he said, Sir, something has appeared on the screen, and there are hundreds of dots that have appeared on the screen, and they're unidentified. I don't know what they are this base being located some two or three hours from Pearl Harbor. The lieutenant, with his cup of coffee in his hand, turned to the young man and said, Son, don't worry about it. They're probably ours. Because someone did not heed a warning, because someone did not take seriously a warning that the enemy was coming, America lost its fleet in the Pacific. And over 3,000 men died because someone said, don't worry about it. They're probably ours. Satan, in the same way, is seeking to infiltrate the church. And there are people who will see the signs of his infiltration and will say, don't worry about it. They're probably ours. I want us to look tonight and to go into more detail in this study in Jude and define this contending for the faith, and define this apostasy, the definitions and the the dangers of this apostasy, and see if we can understand what Jude is saying and the warning that he is giving to us about the last days before the coming of Christ. He says to contend for the faith. That literally translates fight for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. The faith that has been once for all delivered to us, fight for it, agonize for it, contend for it. It is a statement that presupposes that the faith is being threatened. I want you to see several things tonight. First of all, there is the defending of the faith. The defending of the faith. And there are four unchanging facts about that faith. You have a very extensive outline given to you tonight, and that's because I knew that you didn't want to be here until time to go to work tomorrow. So I gave you that so you wouldn't have to take a lot of notes on these particular parts but could listen and to comprehend and then go back and study for yourself. The defending of the faith. Four unchanging facts. Number one, the faith is divine 
in its origin. It is divine in its origin. He says the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. That is a first aorist passive participle. It means it's already been accomplished. It is a once for all, all times, handed down and entrusted to the saints' faith. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God. He was speaking of the Old Testament for the New Testament had not yet been put together at that time. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It is a divine faith in its origin. God is the author of our faith, and He gave it to men. Secondly, it is unique in its content. It is unique in its content. Notice that he uses this little definite article, the faith. It's not a faith, it is the faith. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. God has given us the faith. It is a definite faith. Now, we're going to get into that in just a few moments, but it is not just some random grouping of thoughts. These are not the sayings of some wise guru who sits on a hill and gives funny chants. These are definite articles of faith that have been given to us by God through His Word, and so that leads to number three. It is complete in its revelation. It is complete in its revelation. He says it is once for all delivered. There are no revisions, there are no subtractions, there are no additions to the faith. It has been given to us once and for all. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 30 verse 6 said, Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you prove to be a liar. The once for all delivered faith, which simply means God has determined the contents of our faith. He handed that faith through the prophets. It was ultimately delivered in Jesus Christ. Jesus handed it to the apostles and told them to spread that gospel around the world. That faith was delivered through Jesus Christ once and for all, the final revelation of God to be given out by the apostles and those who came under the teachings of the apostles and spreads out even to this day. What we have today is not a new faith. It's an old faith. It is a grounded faith. It is a sure faith. There are no new ideas. Now, it may be the first time you discovered it, but there are no new ideas. There's no new truth. It is a complete faith in its revelation. God gave a complete revelation of Himself. It is complete, and so because it is complete, we are to contend for it. You and I could not contend for a faith that wasn't completed. Because then when somebody asks a question, you say, well, I have to get back with you on that because that hadn't been finished yet. Notice that Jude says in verse 3, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend for the faith. That word appealing is a picture of a military officer who is talking to timid and hesitant soldiers, timid and hesitant about going into battle and appealing to them, exhorting them, encouraging to be men of strength as they walk into the battle. He is appealing to them. This is not a casual thing that he's doing. He is agonizing over this problem that's facing the church. 
That's why he appeals. He gives the plea of a commanding officer. He says to contend. There is a word of agonizing on our behalf that we are to contend for a complete revelation. Then fourthly, it is holy in its nature. Look at verse 20 of the book of Jude. It is holy in its nature. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now here's how it happened. A holy God, by the Holy Spirit, gave the Word through men to give Holy Scripture to produce holy living. It went to God, to the Spirit, to men. Men wrote down what God had revealed to them. That became Holy Scripture, and that Holy Scripture gives us the standard for holy living. It is a holy faith in its nature. And sometimes people will say, well, the faith, that's, you know, that means that the, the Baptists have got their version of it, and the, uh, the Methodists have got their version of it, and the Presbyterians have got their version of it, and, and the Catholics have got their version of it, and everybody's got a version of the faith. So how can you say there is the faith? I'm glad you asked that question. I was wondering when somebody's going to ask that question. If you will follow in your outline this little section that says 12 specific aspects of the faith we are defend, and let me give you the scripture references, Jude is not dumb. He knows that somebody's going to say, well, what faith are you talking about? So in the entire book of Jude, he summarizes all 12 of these aspects of the faith. The first aspect is found in verse 1, that God is the Father of all who believe. Number two, the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ is found in verse 4. He says that the faith contains the doctrine of the grace of God. That's found in verse 4. The total depravity of man is dealt with in verse 7. The Holy Spirit as a person is dealt with in verse 19. The existence of a personal devil is dealt with in verse 9. The fact of judgment and hell is dealt with in verses 6. 7 and 13. Justification by faith is dealt with in verse 11. Then he goes to the personal return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. He deals with that in verse 14. Verse 10 deals with the eternal security of the believer. That's verse 24. That's number 10. That's verse 24. The sovereign keeping power of God. In other words, the, the fact that God keeps what has been committed to him is dealt with in verse 25 and the historical accuracy and the prophetic value of the Old and New Testament Scriptures is dealt with in verses 5 through 19. That's the faith we're to contend for. If somebody comes and tries to undermine the doctrine of grace or says that man is not totally depraved or that there is no personal devil or that there is no hell or that justification is by faith alone or the eternal security of the believer or the personal return of Christ, they have attacked the faith that we are to contend for. Jude outlines very clearly the things that we're supposed to stand for. That's not Baptist doctrine, that's biblical doctrine. That's the faith that we are to contend for. That's not up for denominational interpretation. Jude makes a point of saying, if you want to know what you are to defend, here it is, and he lays it all out. The second thing that I want you to see tonight is the definition and description of apostasy. The definition and description of apostasy. And I want to remind you that an apostate is not a person who has believed in Jesus Christ and quit believing. It's not somebody who has lost their salvation. An apostate is someone who professes to believe something that they've never possessed. It is a denial and a desertion of truth that they have heard, 
that they have been familiar with, maybe that they could spout off and, and repeat to someone, but they have never possessed it in their life. It is a deliberate desertion from the truth. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Peter did not say that they accepted it and lived it. He said they just knew it. They knew the holy commandment and they turned away from it. Apostasy is a falling away. The apostles came to announce and proclaim Jesus Christ. The apostates come to creep in and deny Jesus Christ as our only Lord and Master. Apostasy, a falling away from the faith. Now, how does Jude define apostasy? There are 16 ways listed there on your sheet. and We don't want to take time to read them, but I'm just going to give you the verses again and let you do some study for yourself. This is called Bible teaching. You thought you got out of school and you didn't have to take notes anymore, didn't you? Well, I'm trying to save you some of it. Most of your professors would have never given you this much. Number one, he describes them. He gives the characteristics. He defines apostates by saying they are dreamers who pollute their own bodies. That's found in verse 8. They reject authority, verse 8. They slander angelic beings, verse 8. They speak abusively against whatever they don't understand, verse 10. They are being destroyed by the things they understand, verse 10. They are subjects of Enoch's prophecy. We'll get into that a little later on in our study, verse 14. They commit ungodly acts in ungodly ways, verse 15. And then the next three or four are found in verse 16. They are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. All of those are found in verse 16. Then the twelfth one is found in verse 17. They are subjects of apostolic prophecy. In other words, Paul wrote about these people. Peter wrote about these people. He said they were going to come. Then in verses, uh, verse 18, the next two, they are scoffers and mockers and they follow ungodly desires. Verse 19 says they cause division among believers and they follow natural instincts. Now in verses 5 through 11, he gives seven examples from the Old Testament. They're found on the back side of your sheet. They give, he gives seven examples from the Old Testament. All of these are found in verses 5 through 11. And then in verses 12 and 13, he gives six metaphors or analogies about apostates. Boy, if you, if you ever want to know what an apostate is, Jude's going to explain it. If there was ever a ton of material compacted into one little book, it is compacted into this book. Jude is so specific that if you study this book and if you read it and if you meditate on it and if you get before God to find out what God's saying to you through this little book, you will find and discover that you will be able to spot it when an apostate comes. Why? Because you know the truth. You don't determine an apostate by studying falsehood. You determine who's an apostate by studying truth. And so by studying the truth, you can come to determine who these people actually are. And so then he comes down and he gives a description of apostasy, and that's our third and last point tonight. He gives a description of apostasy. And what, what you need to see, verse 4, and he gives these characteristics of apostates. Verse 4, for certain persons 
have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. They have crept in unnoticed. Let me give you these descriptions. Crept in. It is an interesting picture. We talked last week about the fact that it's a picture of someone slipping into the water and not making a wave at all. It's also a picture of someone who's been exiled from a country, slipping back in into that country. Another picture is of a lawyer who uses certain words to subtly influence a jury. It is also pictured as a word of one who slips into a side door without anybody noticing that they're coming in. These people have crept in unnoticed. The saying today would be, a contemporary saying would be, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch. The New Testament would say a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. So let me give you some references, if I could, about this creeping in, this slipping in that he mentions in verse 4 and how this verse affects all the rest of the book of Jude. And for you to understand it, you must understand verse 4. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Jesus referred to the leaven of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12. Verse 1, he said that the Pharisees' teachings, their hypocrisy was like leaven. He referred to the hypocrisy of the Sadducees, the leaven of the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Acts 20, 29 and 30. These people have crept in. And sad to say, they have crept into many churches, many places. And there's a danger of these apostates. Paul writing, Luke writing in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, just before the book of Jude. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Those few pages just before Jude begins to write, 2 Peter and Jude are so closely tied together. Peter is writing about these days and these times. And he comes to this second epistle written just before he is to lay his life down for the cause of Christ. And he says, But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who secretly shall bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring with themselves swift destruction. Listen, if you would, to what Chuck Swindoll says about apostates. Doctrinal and moral defection usually begin from almost imperceptible microbes of impurity. Contaminations like these are easier to nip in the bacterial stage. Left to themselves, they become a doughy mess virtually overnight. These people have crept in. And Jude says in verse 4 that they were long beforehand marked out. That little phrase beforehand marked out is used four times in the Greek New Testament. 
Isaiah chapter 8, it says, If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If somebody does not speak according to the word of God, it's because there's no light in them. Here's, here's a principle you can always follow. If a person disregards the word, you disregard them. If a person uses the word supplementally, you disregard them. If a person doesn't build their teachings and their principles out of a correct interpretation of Scripture, and that happens when you take Scripture in its context, 95% of the problems were solved by reading what comes before a verse and what comes after a verse and reading it in the context of the book in which it is written. Most heresies begin by pulling a verse out of its context. Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise, and what thou doest, do quickly. Three verses, all in the Bible, but you don't want the end result of that. If a man disregards the Word of God, disregard him. Don't listen to him. Stay away from him. Disregard what he has to say. Listen to some quotes from some sermons. Sometimes you hear things like this and you just you wonder why the Lord waits as long as He does. But I want you to hear these quotes and these sermons. I do not believe in the doctrine of salvation by the blood. Thank God I am not saved by the blood of anyone. Salvation by the blood of the gospel is of a butcher shop. Another one has said, The gospel miracles represent the crude idea of a superstitious age, and they are, to that extent, untrustworthy. Another one has said, Those who recorded the virgin birth were doubtless influenced by pagan fables, seeking by these to secure for Jesus the honor of celestial paternity. There's only one place that you get stuff like that. And that's from the pit of hell. The gospel is a gospel of the blood. Because it took the blood to save us. By the way, when we were saved, that was a miracle. And if that is untrustworthy, then none of us are saved. And if we're not saved by the virgin-born, sinless Christ, then who are we going to be saved by? You and I need to disregard anything or anyone that disregards the Word of God. Now, he gives three dangers of apostasy. He says, number one, that they are irreverent in their character. That's the only one we're going to deal with for tonight because it'll take the remainder of our time. Secondly, he says they are immoral in conduct. And thirdly, he says they are insubordinate in creed. Irreverent in character. That's the word ungodly. He uses that word ungodly. And then immoral in conduct, that's the word licentiousness. Licentiousness. They are immoral people. And insubordinate in creed, that's they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Thayer's Greek lexicon describes this lack of reverence, this ungodly, as destitute of reverential awe of God. Destitute of reverential awe of God. That they lack a fear of God. That there are no qualities of godliness in them. That they reject God's wrath against sin. They reject God's holiness. They are ungodly. There's absolutely nothing in them that gives reverence to the name of God. 
They lack respect for the things of God. They don't take God seriously. And really, the beginning of all apostasy comes. The first germ of the disease, the first crack in the dam, is irreverence for who God is. Not understanding who God is. Ungodly people. He's not just talking about the people who are ungodly in their lifestyle. He's talking about people who care nothing about the things of God. They have no reverence for the name of God, for the person of God, for the character of God. And six times in Jude, he uses this little word, ungodly. Verse 8, he says, they revile angelic majesties. That could translate, they make a joke of angelic majesties. He says, and J.B. Phillips translates verse 8, they make a jest of heavenly glories. In verse 10, look at what Jude says. He says, they revile the things which they do not understand. In verse 16, they are grumblers finding fault. In verse 18, he says, they are mockers. In verse 12, he refers to the love feast. That's another reference to the Lord's Supper and to the Lord's table. He says, they come to take the Lord's Supper and they don't have any reverence for the things of God. They have no reverence for the body and blood of Jesus. They don't care to remember that. It's just a joke to them. Let's just get on with something else. They are irreverent about the Lord's table. And so Jude comes and he gives us three examples of irreverence in this little book. First of all, he gives the example of the Exodus. At the Exodus in verse 5, notice what he says in verse 5. He talks about the Exodus and he says this little phrase in verse 5. They did not believe. Turn, if you would, to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. The Exodus. He's talking about people who are irreverent. Actually, let's go to Numbers 11 first. Numbers 11 and then Numbers 14. Three examples. The first one is those in the Exodus. These are people who have been delivered out of Egypt on their way to a promised land. But Jude gives the example that these people, all, although delivered out of Egypt, Egypt has not been delivered out of them. And he says in chapter 11 of Numbers, verse 1, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Verse 4, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? And then they started complaining in verse 5. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Boy, you wouldn't want to be around those folks, would you? Verse 6, But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Joshua and Caleb were delivered. Look at chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10 makes reference to the grumblings of the people of Israel. The children of Israel were complaining and griping and grumbling in the presence 
of God. Now, let me ask a question. If God inhabits the praises of His people, where do you think He is when there's grumbling? Is that a fair question? If God inhabits the praises of His people, where do you think God is when there's grumbling? He's out the door, friend. That's where He is. Grumbling, complaining in the presence and the hearing of the Lord. You know what they're complaining about? They were complaining about what God had given them freely. Lord, I just, I'd like to go back to the old ways before I was saved. I'd like to go back before. I'd like to go back to my pre-salvation condition. I'd just like to, because nothing's been good ever since you got me out here in the middle of this. And they grumbled and they complained and only two of them made it out of the promised land. And in fact, he goes on to say in Numbers chapter 14, he says, you keep griping and complaining because you say your kids are going to get out of here and die. By the way, let me tell you, you're going to be the ones that die. I'm going to take your kids into the promised land. Now, I want you to say a word after me several times, okay? It's the word murmur. Let's say it together. Murmur. Say it again. Murmur. 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 It sounds bad, doesn't it? I mean, just the word. Sounds bad, doesn't it? You ever been around anybody? Murmur, 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 murmur. They get on the phone and they murmur, 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 murmur. Murmur, grumbling, complaining. You know what? He's using an illustration here. Understand the illustration he's using. Jude says that when we murmur and when we complain and when we gripe, we are showing irreverence toward God. What we're doing is we're saying, God, you don't know what's going on down here, and I'm about sick and tired of the way you're running things. I'd like to tell you how to do some things around here. God, I don't like the way things are happening around here. And he says, Jude says, if you want an example of ungodly people, number one, they murmur and they complain and they grumble. You know how to stop that? Walk by somebody that's murmuring one day and just go, murmur, murmur, murmur. (laughs) Jude says that they're complaining, they're murmuring, and he uses that as an example of irreverence. Friends, regardless of what our condition is and what our circumstances are, in light of the grace of God to save us, what do any of us have to complain about? I mean, I know we all have bad days, and I know we all have ups and downs, and our emotions go haywire sometimes. But have you thought lately about how much we complain about that we don't have any business complaining about? Trying to tell God how to run His business. Trying to tell God how to do things. That's what the people of Israel did, and they ended up in the wilderness. By the way, most people who complain live in the wilderness. In fact, most people who complain die in the wilderness. They never taste the fullness of the promised land. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. The food in the promised land is too good to sit out there and eat manna when God's got something better for you if you just stop complaining. And you know who complainers complain to? Other complainers. 
somebody asks me every now and then, say, you ever hear anything bad? No, I really don't. You know why a lot of people don't ever hear anything bad? Because they don't listen to complainers. You know who always hear complainers? People who listen to complainers and who complain to complainers. I mean, that's true. You know who will listen to a gossip? Another gossip. You know, listen to somebody who's got a diarrhea of the mouth? Somebody that's got the same problem. It's irreverence. It is irreverence. Because it's saying you and I deserve something more than what God gave us. Well, I tell you what we deserve. We deserve to be separated from God for eternity. That's what we deserve. So I don't have anything to complain about, even if things don't go my way sometimes. The first example he gives is of the people of the Exodus, and he says that they showed their irreverence by grumbling. The second example he gives is of Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel in verse 9. Look at verse 9 if you would. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Angels are messengers of God, and Jude is using this illustration of Michael and the archangel arguing over the body of Moses, and he says that Michael understood that judgment belongs to God, and, and in his exalted position before God, he still said, the Lord rebuke you. I don't know about you. Sometimes I get in my flesh, and I say, I rebuke you for that. Michael the archangel never lowered himself to that level. He could have. It's a pretty exalted position. He's the only archangel mentioned in the Bible. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He was on an equal standing with, with Lucifer before he fell, and he didn't sit down there and say, well, look, devil, I'm going to give you 47 reasons why you can't have that. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. You see, one of the characteristics of irreverence is that there is no respect there is no awe for God, nor the things of God, and there's always a disputing about the things of God. The things that belong to God, there's a disputing about those things. The third example that he gives is Cain. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. That is a reference to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Cain failed to make the acceptable sacrifice to God. You know what Cain's problem was? He never intended to give God the best. He never intended to do what God told him to do. He never intended to make the sacrifice that was acceptable to God. He wanted to make the sacrifice on his terms. Never was going to lay down his best for God. And Jude comes in and says, when you and I do not lay down our best for God... That is irreverence. Irreverence. A lack of reverence. And the church today is in need of a baptism of reverence. The Jews in the Old Testament so revered the name of God, of Yahweh, that they would not even speak it in public. And yet we are so flippant about the name of God. The things of God. 
We complain so easily about what God is doing or what someone else is doing, and, and we become irreverent in that. We know the world's irreverent. See, the world's funny. The world has turned its back on God. The world kills its neighbor, and it blames God for the problems in the world. We know the world is irreverent. The problem is, is that the irreverence has gotten into the church. Let me tell you what I think is one of the most irreverent things we can do. It is irreverent when we come to church and we leave talking about what we got out of service. I didn't get much out of that today. Friends, worship is for God. It is not for us. Now, I know we get blessed when we worship. But the purpose of worship is to magnify Jesus, not to magnify how we feel. And we must remember that it is irreverent to judge worship by how it appeals to our flesh and to our emotions. It is reverent to judge worship by how appealing it was to God. You see, we can become irreverent in worship by thinking that worship has to be a certain style or a certain way or we have to do certain things in worship and then we become programmed and we get this little idea that God only shows up when we do this. And we, so we do the same things and, and we build our worship around a memory of God working in that particular situation or through that song or through that event or through that style and not a fresh awareness of God's working today right now. It is irreverent for us to come to worship and to be flippant about what God is doing. And you can think of multitudes of examples of irreverence. You know, I can, I can think of a bunch of them, you know, talking in church, writing, getting up and leaving, all this. You know, I can, I can think of tons of those kind of things. But let's just sum it up to say this way. Irreverence is anything we do that in any way diminishes who God is when we gather together. To diminish who God is and who we are there for. Friends, worship is not to see the preacher and to figure out what kind of socks he's got on. Worship is not to see the soloist. Worship is not to count the numbers on your pew. Worship is for you and I to enter into the presence of God and to enjoy Him and to worship Him and to lift our voices and our hearts to Him and to shut everything out except what we are offering to Him. That's worship. You worship God when you sing. You worship God when you pray. You worship God when you preach. You worship God when you say amen. You worship God when you listen. You worship God when you respond. You worship God when you have done in worship what He told you to do in worship. That's reverence. Reverence doesn't have anything to do with sitting with your arms crossed and looking like somebody stole your last lemon. That's not reverence. Reverence is doing what God told you to do. That's reverence. When you and I leave church and we know that all is well between us and the Savior, 
and we can walk out the door and say, God, I did exactly what you told me to do today. I responded exactly how you told me to respond today. I did what you led me to do this day. I have tried to please you with my life. I have laid my life on the altar today in worship. That's reverence. And I'm afraid that sometimes we become irreverent just because we enter worship so casually. We, we enter worship flippantly. We turn it on. I enjoy the fellowship that we have. And you know that. I mean, you know that I enjoy things to be loose and relaxed and all that kind of stuff. But friends, worship is not something you can turn on at 7 o'clock or at 11 o'clock on Sunday and then turn it off. Worship is something that you and I have to do every day of our lives. You get ready for worship before you ever walk in the doors of this building. You get ready for worship as you're preparing. And don't think that Satan doesn't fight us at the point of trying to prepare our hearts for worship. He will fight us there. Because he wants us to treat worship as just something we do, just an activity we go through, and then it becomes irreverence. I want us to have such reverence for God that when people walk into this building, they sense the very holy presence of God. And if that causes them to stand and say amen or shout hallelujah, or if it causes them to fall on their face before God and weep in repentance, or if it causes us to sit still and be silent, let us be sensitive enough to the Spirit of God to know what He is leading us to do and to respond accordingly and to be reverent toward Him. Not complaining, not grumbling, not questioning, not offering less than our best, but being reverent in worship. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.